0: And in my particular case, even when I was in Unilever, we used, always used to sort of personify the consumer as a sheen. And therefore, mentally, I was always selling to women. And Faces was selling makeup. So again, it was almost exclusively to women. I've just been in spaces where we've been selling to women. So it almost comes naturally to me. I keep joking to my team that, you know, I think more as a woman consumer than as a male consumer. My instinct is to think that way.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Direct to a Billion Consumers. My name is Arjun Vaidya and I'm your host. Today I'm very excited to have Shankar Prasad. Shankar is the founder of Pure Play Life Sciences. He doesn't run one, he runs three brands in the personal care space, namely Plum, Phi, and Body Loving. Been a fan from the sidelines of his journey and I'm so excited to have you on this chat. Shankar, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Arjun. Thank you for having me. Shankar, you have the dream CV, basically, right? IIT, Unilever, Kinsey and then private equity at Everstone. I started when I was 24. But with all this experience, what got you to actually say goodbye to the corporate world and take the sort of risk of starting up? Yeah, I think
0: I was always looking for something to build. So my initial part of my journey was really learning. So HUL, the eight years that I spent there was completely immersed in learning. So I learned, I mean, as HUL does, you learn a variety of functions, but I specialized in manufacturing and And then product development. Post my MBA, I was always looking to be part of building a business. If not as an entrepreneur, at least part of an early stage business. And the two years that that I spent at McKinsey, while it gave me sort of an excellent CXO view of life. When I left McKinsey, I actually said this to people I was meeting at that point in time saying, I want to experience the thrill of building a business. At that time, I didn't have entrepreneurship on my mind. I just wanted to be part of the business. I, I enjoy the journey of going from zero to one. And working with people to make that happen and the challenges that come with it. So when I joined Everstone, I joined on the operations side. And we were actually helping our portfolio companies of very young, at that time, companies, again in the consumer space, which is another thing that I like, to scale. And as luck would have it, you know, we had bought out Faces Canada and they needed somebody to sort of take the reins at that point in time. And I happened to be around and I I ran the company out of even though I was part of Everstone for a couple of years before handing it over to a full-time CEO. And that's when I really began to enjoy the front end of a beauty business. In HVL, I was mostly on the back end. And when I started thinking as to, you know, where the next stage of my journey should go, it was very clear that it had to be in the beauty space. And there was a sort of unmet, let's say, ambition in phases of working on skincare that I finally began to realize when I launched Plum. And that's how I ended up becoming an entrepreneur. It was initially tough to sort of, you know, not look at the salary hitting your bank account at the end of the month. But uh, I think I got used to it after a few months and then started bootstrapping. And I have to ask, you talk about sort of choosing the
1: personal care space as well. And bulk of your sales, at least two of your brands comes from women. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of being a male at the helm of a personal
0: care company? It's a very interesting question. And in my particular case, even when I was in Unilever, we always used to sort of personify the consumer as a she, and therefore mentally i was always selling to women and faces was selling makeup so again it was almost exclusively to women i have just been in spaces where we've been selling to women so it almost comes naturally to me i keep joking to my team that you know i think more as a woman consumer than as a male consumer my instinct is to think that way and coincidentally for me in my life Personal life also, I don't have brothers, I have, I have a sister. So I grew up with an elder sister. My teachers were all women, and including the music teacher I learned from. I got married, I have two children, they are both daughters. My sister has two daughters. So I've always been surrounded by women. And not to mention my mother, of course, all the other women relatives that I have. So I've always been surrounded by women on the personal side also. So to me, it's not something alien to think about women as people or women as consumers and that's really you know helped me sort of almost be natural at this thing. The other thing about other advantage of being a male in a woman centric consumer space is that you look at things objectively right. I don't let my there are no personal preferences because I don't necessarily have a very strong point of view on the product. So I'm able to assess every product every communication every let's say color every font objectively as opposed to my personal likes and preferences. So I think that really helps. The disadvantage of course is that, you know, there are things that you don't end up trying as intensively as as, as a woman would. But I think, in my opinion, the advantages, given my sort of background and my unique circumstances outweigh the disadvantages. You
1: know, one more thing about your company is that it's run with a deep alignment to purpose, right? And to me, Right. Purpose is critical for brands today. Purpose is what customers buy for. But was that the case in 2014? Like, why did you start caring so much about
0: being a vegan right. brand, being cruelty-free? So, yeah, this was something that was baked into what the brand is about. So, if you look at the logo of Plum as a brand, it says, be good as a line. So, that was not an afterthought. Or the fact that our website is plumgoodness.com or our Instagram handle is Goodness. These were not afterthoughts that we strapped on saying, okay, you know what, it's... It's a smart thing to say that we are good and therefore that's what we're about. I believe that at some level that if I am sort of taking this step out and at that time it was a huge leap of faith and entrepreneurship was not that much of a done thing, let's say seven, eight years ago as it is now. When I'm taking that sort of leap into the unknown, I might as well build something that, that has some more meaning and purpose to it as opposed to building a purely commercial venture. During the process of you know designing what Plum is about, I came across this organization called 1% for the Planet. The co-founders are, one of the co-founders is the founder of Patagonia Clothing. And 1% for the Planet has a very simple idea that you give 1% of your revenue, mind your revenue, not profits, to environmental causes as a business. It's sort of, again, baked into your, your operating, let's say, model. And the I really loved that thought. I said businesses can actually contribute in addition to being a business simply being a business and within that the philosophy of be good is one percent for the planet and then i started thinking what is it that what else could we do to a make a difference and b also be unique and stand out and at that point in time vegan was a was a new topic a lot of people were thinking of going vegan a lot of people were appreciating what veganism about is about and you are from the cosmetic space you understand that going vegan and cosmetics not as hard as going vegan with food and i said this is a must have into the mix and that's how we started by going vegan and cruelty free at the point in time but it's worth pointing out that vegan and cruelty free has always been a subset of what the brand really stands for and that is to actually live the purpose of being good and it's a very very simple idea at its heart and vegan is just a sort of manifestation of that thought of being good being good yeah you're
1: right it's also in the Instagram page on the website as well so I have to now, uh, Shankar, sort of transition right. to my favorite topic, right? And my favorite topic is hmm. moat when it comes to consumer brands. So, for CPG companies, this product moat used to be very right. important. But just right. given the amount of activity, in beauty, and personal care right now, is really product a moat or is it brand that's so the moat
0: now? My mental model, as well as my favorite answer to this question, and this is the question that a lot of people used to ask me. In a different flavor, actually, when I was leaving Everstone and, you know, founding this, I was saying, how will you be unique in the market? There are so many brands already. And even at that point in time, there were a lot of brands in the market. The number has only increased and it continues to increase as we go forward. So, how are you unique or what makes you have that sort of competitive advantage in the in a crowded market? Uh, to me, the answer is, one thing cannot be your mode in today's world, where replication is easy, where outsourcing is easy, where access to skills can be bought and outsourced. So, it's difficult to say, you know what, I make products with this particular ingredient, that's what makes me unique. It's not going to work in today's world. Neither can I say I make the most efficacious product, because somebody else is going to come up and say, you know what, mine, mine are also efficacious, I have data to prove it. So... To me, the mode has to be a combination lock. Right? It has to be a combination of things. And that combination is unique to every brand. And brand is really sort of, as my professor in at ISB taught me, he, he asked us, what is a brand? Define a brand. And people went around the classroom you know, saying various things. He gave me a very simple, this is Harish Bijor He actually was a visiting faculty at ISB. He gave us a very, very simple idea of what a brand is about. A brand is a promise of value. And a brand is a as a promise of value. Now, that promise of value and value is not just about price or cost. The cost-price equation or whatever. It's something that you make the customer feel good about. is also value. It is actually value. And a promise of value to that customer when he or she sees your logo anywhere, he sees your packaging anywhere, they're experiencing your product on the dressing shelf. When you're delivering the promise of value, that's a combination of a lot of things. That's a combination of your texture, that's a combination of the packaging, that's a combination of the feel of the packaging, the logo, the copy on the front, the copy on the back, whether there is a carton, there is no carton, the leaflet that came with it, the QR code that sits on the back, the experience of the website that they remember, the Instagram page they remember. There are, I think, countless touch points that the brand brings to life in people's minds. And to me... A moat in today's day and age can and has to be a combination of these things. And it's not that, especially in the world of beauty, again, you'd appreciate this being a beauty brand for yourself. In the world of beauty, there is no absolute. That this is the absolute best cleanser that you will have. This is the absolute best toner that you will get. This is the absolute best sunscreen you will have. People always mix and match brands. They even mix brands during times of the day. So they switch brands during times of the day. So therefore... You have to be in those mind states of a lot of people at a lot of time and fulfilling the promise of value that you give them. And I know it's a very complex answer to a very simple question, but to me the answer is not simple to what a moat is. The answer is a combination of things.
1: Yeah, there isn't one one yeah. real moat at least in in this market. I definitely agree with you. I wanted to now actually talk about the customer, right? So while there is huge euphoria right. towards beauty and personal care in India, the online. Keeping consumers loyal is now even harder because customers see something new every day. So how do you look at loyalty and sort of bringing customers back to your brand?
0: To me, I mean, I'm I'm somewhat old-fashioned about this concept of loyalty. Old-fashioned and hence almost simplistic about it. If you offer the right experience and therefore the right value, there is no reason for consumers to be disloyal to you. Of course, they will flirt because they are tempted all the time with some offer or some ingredient or some texture or something they see because their temptation is 24-7 on their phone screens. So, you can't sort of wall it off. You can't sort of build a wall and say, you know what, my customers are mine and I'm not going to let them flirt. They will flirt with tens of brands and they'll probably even switch. But the consistency of experience, reliability of experience that you offer the lovability of the experience that you offer across the touch point that we spoke about in the previous question, to me, that is the single most important crux. I mean, that's really the crux of what loyalty brings. Of course, technology allows you to now bring, allows you to sort of bring that experience to a lot more people in a lot many more ways. For example, through emailers, through pop-up notifications, through SMSs, through WhatsApp, to whatever. And, You know, that's the execution part of what this is about. But at the core of it, you have to create that differentiated, lovable, delightful, consistent experience that happens again and again and again through every single product of the brand that they buy. And you fail once, you're right. They have every reason and temptation to switch out.
1: I think a simple insight to a really, really big problem on loyalty and something that we think about every day, I wanted to also talk about brand, right? So for me, a brand is a person with its own qualities, personality, traits. Running one brand for me was a journey of a lifetime in itself. So how do you manage
0: three brands? Give us the secrets. The secret is really the people behind the brands. I think you're right. It's tough to run one brand. Running three brands is a completely, it can't drive you mad. So the secret is really the people behind the brands and the approach we have taken to brand building, which is, they're empowered to the hilt. I don't micromanage a lot of things that go through. The only thing that I can claim to micromanage is brand tonality and the look and feel and some of the sort of higher order stuff that I just make sure that it's sort of staying within the guardrails of what we have put down. And in several cases, at least in the case of Body Loving as well as Phi, the people behind the brand have also been involved in the creation of the brand. It's not a brand that I created that someone else is sort of running today so that creation of the brand and the sort of journey that they have and this is especially important in the early years of the brands that ownership that is there this is what this brand is about there is an internalization of what this brand should be and therefore it doesn't take too much daily effort from my end for example to say hey you know what they're not looking good This is not looking good or this is how we should do it there is that whole sort of natural alignment to what is right and what is wrong what are the coordinate axes in which quadrant should be on on each of these brands And in the case of Plum, which is the oldest of the brands that we have and, you know, the team that is currently working on the brand is, you know, joined in much later in the brand's life stage. There, I think, because, again, this team joined us when we were really small, the transmission from what my thought is about the brand from me to them has been quite efficient, I would think, in hindsight. And therefore, there again, there is that sort of shared, you know, rights and wrongs about the brand that exists. And therefore, it just makes the job of running these three brands easier. That's on the branding side. But however, when it comes to product, when it comes to, you know, marketing, marketing budgets, and all the fights that happen, saying, should we spend here or should we spend there? That's part of everyday life as a as a multi-brand company that we have, we have evolved into. I guess that's part of my job of managing those conflicting, let's say, needs and uh, priorities. But I think, overall, there is a trust that, you know, what is right will happen. And the philosophy of be good that permeates is different if, the three brands may be different in their look and feel. The philosophy permeates across. And that again makes things very easy. People is the key there. percent.
1: Yeah, I think the people is the key there, right? That's the insight from what you said. So Shankar, you've had quite a bit of experience, right? And Brand Ambassador is something that all consumer brands, including me, think about through our journey. And we've never talked about it on okay. this podcast. So I thought I'll ask you that question. As someone with sort of so much experience, worked at Unilever, in the past, what do you think about having a brand ambassador? Is there a right time? Does it work for some brands
0: and not work for others? In an ideal world, Arjun, the brand ambassador should almost embody, personify the brand values, right? Now, what happens, and we've been through the journey ourselves and at various times and in various forms. the In an ideal world, the, the brand ambassador personifies the brand itself. And therefore, you, you look at the person and the brand comes to mind. But, you know, that's rare to happen because you may, that personification may be ideal, sort of fit with the brand may be ideal, but the person may not be recognizable or the person may be not relatable to a lot of people. That person may not fall into a TG in terms of gender or age or whatever else. And so, therefore, we start drifting away from this ideal fit situation. And therefore, to me, the answer to that question is really... It depends on brand-to-brand brand and what your objectives are at that point in time. It depends on how, quote-unquote, mass you want to go or how wide you want to go in the market. If you're going really wide, then a celebrity is almost a given. I mean, it's almost a must in today's environment where it's a, it's a way to break clutter and that's it. A face on an Instagram ad versus that known face on the Instagram ad. That known face on the Instagram ad, whether or not it relates back very well to what your brand stands for is secondary. But that known face makes a huge difference in your click-through rates and in your conversion rates and what it is. Therefore, the hard economics of it begins to take over from the softer, let's say, does this person really personify the brand values discussion? And therefore, if if scale is an ambition, a brand ambassador is a given would be my view.
1: I totally agree. And it's a conundrum that all sort of D2C founders, all consumer brands founders have. And so it'll be awesome for everyone to hear your insight. As a parting question, Shankar, what are the trends that you see coming up in beauty and personal care in India over the next five years? Is it new product categories, change in consumer behavior? What do you see happening? Interesting question. And
0: I think the toughest of the lot to answer to sort of gaze into the future. And I'm saying this with a little bit of trepidation, even as an attempt to answer that question. I think, for lack of a better term, the wokeness of people is only going to go up. You're going to talk to people who are not easily convincible, people who have formed a point of view basis, a lot of active and passive research. Whether you want it or not, if you're a person who has ever purchased a skincare product online, you're going to be bombarded by a lot of information from influencers, from marketplaces from brands from everywhere and therefore again whether you want it or not you are a passive consumer of knowledge online and therefore some of the knowledge definitely does sort of seep through into your consciousness and you start taking you start evaluating what you see through the length of what you've learned. so one big theme is that the you're going to be speaking to a far more knowledgeable audience as time passes Where we are compared to where we were, let's say, five years ago, in terms of the knowledge of the audience, it's mind-blowing how much we've traveled. For example, when we started out, we had to tell people what in-key list is. We had to tell people what ingredient lists are. We had to tell people to read ingredient lists. Today, the reverse happens. People read our ingredient lists and come back to us with questions even before we've started. So that is definitely a trend that is going to continue and deepen further. That's number one. Number two, this year... Diversity of product on the consumer's shelf is bound to increase. People are open to new experiences. People are open to trying out new things. People are open to spending a lot more. People understand the value of quality, the value of the right ingredients and the right concentration. So, therefore, the market is definitely going to expand in width in terms of what is present on the consumer's shelf. The third thing is which I think has already started happening a lot, which will further happen a lot more, is as brands with purpose. And genuinely so. It's it's one thing to sort of change your Instagram PP to a, a rainbow color during Gay Pride one. It's another thing to sort of walk the talk when it comes to any of the causes or purposes that you believe in as a brand. And as sort of cause marketing also begins to get commoditized, people are going to look at a brand's commitment to purpose through a slightly... Sterner perspective and really call out brands who are just saying things for this purpose of saying it versus brands who are actually living, walking the talk and living the purpose. That's my prediction of the third thing I'm seeing happening over the next five years or so. But again, as I said, this is a very, very tough crystal ball case and I'm hoping I'm right here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I think purpose is a theme that's really resonated and, and gone deep. So, Shankar, before I let you go, we have a Tradition on this podcast, we do a rapid-fire round before we end. So oh, okay. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when I say these phrases. What's your favorite brand that's not yours? Nike. What's your go-to brand at a grocery store? ID. Online or offline consumption? Online. Are you Android or iOS? Android. Performance marketing or branding? Branding. What's your favorite product amongst the ones you've created?
0: The pit cream of Plum Body Love
1: What's the app you spend the most time on? Gmail. <laughs> Last question. Since we can't really travel right now, which is the first place you'll go to when the world opens? Simple. Awesome, Shankar. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until the next episode, we'd love to hear back from you on questions, feedback or anything else. I'm available on Instagram at AB Vaidya and on LinkedIn at Arjun Vaidya, and I'd love to chat. Don't forget to click the subscribe icon if you like what you heard and please click share button and share with family and friends. We're nothing without our listeners. It's been an absolute pleasure Shankar. I've learnt a lot from this conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as well.
0: I really enjoyed it Arjun. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to all of you.